As Mirlou warns, quote, Nearly all of the mature ideals of mankind are crimes in totalitarian. Freedom and independence, compromise and ob objectivity, all of these are treasonable. The ordinary, law-abiding citizen in totalitarian, far from being a hero, is potentially guilty of hundreds of crimes. He's a criminal if he is stubborn in defense of his own view. He is a criminal if he refuses to become confused. He is a criminal if he does not loudly and vigorously participate in all official acts. Reserve, silence, and ideological withdrawal are treasonable. The only safe pass for the citizen of totalitarian lies in the complete abdication of his mental integrity. Close quote. Welcome back, my friends, to the New Suffrage Movement. We have a society to save, and I'm Dr. Dave Ellis, hoping to provide some ideas on how we can emphasize the principles that unite us and restore the critical center in our culture and politics. This episode is, I think, going to be one of the most important of this first series of podcasts, so please take the time to listen closely. In the last podcast, I went over the first three to, of six tools for linguistically deconstructing our U.S. constitutional system. This time I'll finish uh, with tools four through six, but there's a special emphasis today on the social psychology of totalitarian processes involved in deconstructionism. I want to begin then with a couple of quotes from two people. The first is the famous mid-20th century political philosopher Hannah Arendt and the highly respected Dutch psychoanalyst Joost Mierlou. Uh, the latter of whom treated survivors of brainwashing from the Nazi, Soviet, and other totalitarian systems. Let's start with Hannah Arendt. She stresses that situations of social and political isolation create what she described in 1951 as a pre-totalitarian condition. She writes, quote, It has frequently been observed that terror can rule only over men who are isolated against each other, and that, therefore, one of the primary concerns of all tyrannical government is to bring this isolation about. Isolation may be the beginning of terror. It certainly is its most fertile ground. It always is its result. This isolation is, as it were, pre-totalitarian. Its hallmark is impotence insofar as power always comes from men acting together, acting in concert, according to Burke. Isolated men are powerless by definition, close quote. So the inability to share ideas leads to individuals to lose certainty in the world around them and fear the consequences of their inner ideas becoming public, and they therefore steadily become uncertain of reality. Now, in his investigation of brainwashing titled The Rape of the Mind in 1956, Miralou asserted that cultural deterioration could lead to group-level schizophrenic withdrawal once reality becomes ambiguous. He writes, quote, Whatever the cause, the schizophrenic patient becomes a desocialized being, lost in loneliness. Conscious and unconscious fantasy life begins to become dominant over alert confrontation of reality. In the end, his weird fantasies become more real for the schizophrenic than the actual world. He writes later, The world turns around him according to his divine inclinations. Reality, requiring as it does, continual and renewed adjustment and verification, becomes a persecutor, attacking his illusions of divine right. 
He continues later, The schizophrenic displays tremendous hostility toward the real world and its representatives. Reality robs him of both his delusions of omnipotence and his hallucinatory sense of being utterly protected as he was in the womb. Close quote. Now, the process of deconstruction, as we heard from the Gramscian Marxists, the post-structuralists, and the liberation sociologists, requires eroding the existing way of knowing the world, creating a disconnection between people who could reinforce one another's sense of reality and the forcing of the adoption of new ways of knowing the world as early as possible in a child's education. This creates the condition of social psychosis, a larger number of people indoctrinated into the alternate hegemony or political culture, which also increases the revolutionary potential within the political system. There's a whole body of literature in political science on why men rebel, and this feeling of alienation is always a key variable. Okay, so the first three tools, innovation in words and phrases, redefinition of essential terms along with mass re-education, and the appeals to authority, trust the experts or trust the science, all dealt with the individual ways of learning about what's in the world. Now, I mean by that what's in the news and how we're supposed to think about or interpret things as they happen. That's all about the narrative. In this part two, I'll go over the ways social structures, formal and informal human institutions, give power to these basic individual building blocks. Uh, now, remember, every social structure, every organization, by its nature, requires individuals to subscribe to some repeatable rules. Otherwise, the behavioral, what we called regularities that make social structures observable, would dissolve and be lost to history. You might recall I mentioned in a previous podcast that the reason we don't have Romans or Babylonians anymore is because their social rules, customs, and regularities were broken and lost to history. That could happen to us as well. Because of this, preventing deviance from the rules is important for every social structure, whether informal like a pickup game of tag or formal like a political system. And this can be accomplished through the internalization of proper or appropriate behavior so that the regularities, those customs, replicate naturally and legitimately or through penalties and punishments that induce correct behavior. All right, so the tools we're going to go over today are number four, suppression, which includes taboo, political correctness, cancel culture, and which now also includes shock troops and shouting down speakers. Number five, emphasizing fear and emotion over rational thinking. And number six, introducing new social sociopolitical objectives and related philosophies of morality. Now, in repressive systems, social structures try to force compliance on people as if they consent. What I mean by that is coercion is necessary so that people perform the desired behavior publicly, even when they do not believe in it privately. This is what Hannah Arendt was talking about with the mental or cognitive isolation resulting in a pre-totalitarian condition. Now let's take a contemporary totalitarian system, the Assad regime in Syria. You may or may not know anything about the Assad regime in Syria, which is in the Middle East, but it has been a police state 
uh, since the early 1970s. And obviously, there is a tremendous amount of effort uh, placed on speech control. And more importantly, it's been a, in a bloody civil war for almost 12 years. People finally rebelled after 40 years of tyranny. And like every totalitarian system, they go out with a bang. Now, in an excellent study of government control using this idea of coercive performance of the regime instead of popular legitimacy as a basis, Lisa Wedeen, uh, a scholar on Syria, writes, quote, the, uh, the regime, the Assad regime, that is, produces compliance through enforced participation in rituals of obeisance, that means submission, that are transparently phony both to those who orchestrate them and to those who consume them, the general public. Assad's cult operates as a disciplinary device generating a politics of dissimulation, and dissimulation means presenting a false appearance. So generating a politics of false appearance in which citizens act as if they revere their leader. A politics of as if, while it may appear irrational or even foolish at first glance, actually proves politically effective. It produces guidelines for acceptable speech and behavior. It defines and generalizes a specific type of national membership. It occasions the enforcement of obedience. It induces complicity by creating practices in which citizens are themselves accomplices upholding the norms constitutive of, of Assad's domination. It isolates Syrians from one another and it clutters public space with, space with monotonous slogans and empty gestures which tire the minds and bodies of producers and consumers alike. Close quote. In this passage, Wedeen demonstrates both the formal government, police, news, entertainment, etc., and informal personal behavior, collective expectations, behavioral norms, taboos, etc. That is, both the formal and informal types of social structures that underlie hegemony. People have internalized they cannot say anything, and so they don't, and that allows the regime to persist. In a totalitarian system, the fear of overt regime power is internalized and reflected even in personal thoughts and private situations. But it demonstrates clearly the schizophrenic requirement that Mirlu describes. For deconstruction and totalitarianism to work, people have to agree to behave as if reality and objective fact do not exist. They require our submission to Orwell's newspeak and willing self-delusion. Okay, so now let's go over tools four through six. Tool four, suppression. Suppression relates mainly to the informal social structures of dominance. All social structures have boundaries of acceptable behavior and speech. And in most cases, people who want to participate in them self-regulate their behavior accordingly. As good citizens in a social setting, we recognize, especially as adults, that we have a responsibility to self-limit our behavior for pro-social outcomes, whether that's work or government or church or whatever it might be. As an added social mechanism, taboo, which is a prohibition to protect shared customs and norms, helps to inhibit deviance from the expectations because people actively reject violators, violators of the rule. This is how social systems work. But this is why the liberation sociologists believe that oppression begins at home. 
we consent to self-limiting behavior and teach our children to follow the same rules, norms, and values. But since the 1960s, there has been an added twist, the idea of repressive tolerance by Herbert Marcuse, a critical philosopher and intellectual leader of the new left era of the 1960s and 70s. Marcuse argued that the capitalist techno-bureaucratic West had become repressively one-dimensional in its hegemony and conformity to objective positive science. And what they mean by that is the, ba the foundations of our scientific method. And he believed that this was true such that independent human thought was functionally impossible because we had given ourselves over to this technocratic scientific method. So with its veneer of tolerance, Western capitalist society had become repressive for while alternative voices could be heard, they would be dismissed by the masses preference for what they already know. And this is that hegemonic common sense in the Gramscian terms or distorted communication as we talked about with Habermas. For Marcuse, this repressive tolerance, quote unquote, could only be overcome by teaching students to proactively think against the dominant social structures, to critique them and seek alternatives. Objective positivist science had to be overcome in his formulation to end this techno-bureaucratic culture entrenched by the elite or the historic bloc. Now, in 1969, a scholar named Paul Eidelberg revealed the implications of Marcuse's philosophy. Quote, freedom, says Marcuse, requires the systematic tolerance of the left and systematic withdrawal of the right. Freedom requires that the establishment tolerates, tolerate its own subversion, that tolerance be withdrawn from defenders of the status quo. Freedom will therefore require the withdrawal of tolerance, not only from deeds, not only from words, but as Marcuse expressly declares, from thought itself, close quote. So from Marcuse's formulation, political correctness, making taboo statements of political perspective, and cancel culture, publicly pillaring a person for social political observations, become the tools for withdrawing tolerance for free speech. More recently, labeling speech as misinformation, disinformation, racist, hateful, or bigoted has become widely employed as a means of making certain speech and ideas taboo, even when they are deeply rooted in the culture or objective science. And with the rise of a digitally based communication system, ideas can be suppressed by social media, media, and search engine companies, social structures with extensive influence over the social construction of reality whose content algorithms can manipulate scrolling and result options and in so doing skew the perception of prevailing common sense or morality. Now there's another component of suppression that has to be mentioned now, something I failed to include in the article version of, of uh, this uh, podcast. That is the element of the brown shirts, the activists who shut down speakers, threaten violence against people of opposing views, and indeed sometimes actually commit violence against individuals and property. They are the shock troops of the movement, the Jacobins, like in the leftist French Revolution that resulted in the legendary reign of terror in the early 1790s. These are the people who instill fear in people who would otherwise be willing to voice their opposition to the schizophrenia to which they demand we submit. This brings us up to tool number five, 
emphasizing fear and emotion over rational thinking. This tool reinforces the self-censorship inherent to suppression by making tangible threats to individual employment, freedom, and the ability to provide for one's family and self. For instance, professional licensing organizations have threatened to revoke members' licenses for dissenting from their positions. Companies and universities have fired employees for failing to adopt new beliefs, and even some Western governments have begun arresting and stripping parents of their rights to their children for failing to abide by expert opinion on, for instance, transgenderism. What makes such instances so noteworthy is the fact that this kind of coercion is necessary to silence dissent and force submission to even very recent conceptual and linguistic innovations. But they demonstrate without doubt the withdrawal of tolerance for words and thoughts acceptable even within the past few years. So it is not difficult to sense the danger in Arendt's and Mirlu's observations in the aftermath of COVID-19 lockdowns and the pervasive, emotionally charged, indeed infantile, reactions to the insistence on recognizing scientifically, scientifically valid brute facts such as the gender binary. Coercion must be imposed when reality confronts the fantasy. Mirlu explains the utility of fear and emotion as tools in his fictional land called Totalitaria which is his synthesis of brainwashing systems. Quote, the leaders of totalitaria rule by intimidation. They prefer loyalty through fear to loyalty through faith. Fear and terror freeze the mind and will. They may create a general psychic paralysis. Close quote. So to what end are all of these tools oriented? Well, this brings us up to tool number six, new socio-political objectives and moral philosophies. Now, this provides the answer as to why. Revolutionary deconstruction is always rooted in ushering in a new, more moral future. Gramscian deconstruction through linguistic innovation and education of the masses aims the alternate hegemony, that alter, alternate political culture, precisely at the dominant morality underlying the existing hegemony or political culture. Later posts will more thoroughly explore the range of post-negative liberties perspectives, but a few examples now can demonstrate the range of ideas underpinning the deconstruction of American civil political rights. One group, uh, which I think at this point reflects the thinking of uh, the globalists or Kotkin's oligarchs and clerisy, focuses on how individuals routinely make decisions irrationally, and there's a whole body of literature on this um, in, in psychology, which means uh, that individual right to vote can lead to suboptimal outcomes according to these uh, theorists. The highly regarded scholar Amitai Etzioni, for example, suggests the need for what he calls, quote, deontological structuralism, close quote. Okay, what does that mean? It basically means that uh, relying, we should rely on collectivities, some mixture of corporations, governments, um, international organizations or, or conglomerates of these groups to make important decisions because they transcend individual knowledge limitations. They can adopt longer term perspectives and incorporate scientific expertise in ways individuals simply cannot. That's that deontological structuralism. Now, advocates of this view believe that large scale structural change for the future needs to be led by, led by empowered institutions. 
uh, institutions and and uh, who are not, in Etzioni's view, short-sighted, knowledge-constrained, um, or focused on their short-term interests like us individuals and who vote that way. Here you might sense the alignment of government, technology companies, financial powerhouses, and international organizations convinced that the only way to avoid a climate catastrophe is to fundamentally transform human civilization by 2030. Fear to justify environmental policy, anyone? Similarly, contemporary collectivist philosophers seek to break the intellectual foundations of individualistic civil political rights, or those negative liberties, through their replacement with collectivist frameworks. Uh, here's an example, for instance. Cyrus R.K. Patel takes on the classical liberal tradition in his book, Negative Liberties, Morrison, Pinchon, and the Problem of Liberal Ideology. He writes, quote, We have come, in short, to a cultural impasse, and we will not advance until we come to terms with the following paradox that we must give up the rigid methodological individualism, those individual civil political rights, that characterizes our thinking on so many social and cultural issues if we are ever to achieve the values and goals that Emersonian liberalism and its popular variants were designed to foster. We must find a middle ground between the extremes of individualism and communitarianism. Close quote. In other words, a U.S. Constitution rooted solely in negative liberties tradition is not sufficient for a just moral political order. Now, remember how I mentioned a few podcasts ago how two law professors recently argued that we should scrap the Constitution because it doesn't contain positive liberties? Now, Patel's version is supposed to be a middle ground, but in effect, it would have the same impact of undermining our individual rights over the medium to long term. At the more extreme end, Italian communist political philosopher Roberto Esposito argue, argues that all concepts of political rights, whether negative or positive liberties, are inherently about possession and therefore exclusive of others. Even collectivist communitarian ideologies have boundaries regarding who is accepted into the community, according to Esposito. So concepts of rights must be washed away in favor of what he calls quote, affirmative freedoms, close quote. These are obligations, uh, gifts to the community that each individual is responsible for. Moreover, he says, we must also wash away the boundaries of social and political exclusion created by political communities. Well, what are political communities? Those are our countries, our states, and ultimately our national identities. Now, Greg Bird, another scholar, summarizes Esposito's thinking. Quote, in his Republican model, that means in his communist conception of republicanism, communal duties and obligations, which are ontologically grounded. Now, ontologically grounded means embedded in the worldview or the political culture are prioritized over rights and interests. Let me rephrase that. In his Republican model, communal duties and obligations, the individual's responsibility to the community are prioritized over rights and interests of the individual himself or herself. And that needs to be embedded in the most basic worldview of the individual. All right, so I'm going to reread this. In his Republican model, communal duties and obligations, which are ontologically grounded, are prioritized over rights and interests. 
He continues, this ethical economy also addresses the core communist problem of redistribution, not as pieces of property, personal or, other, or otherwise, in the first instance, but in terms of an ethical ontology and later ethical biological notion of sharing, condivisione. That is, we must transform how we think, view morality, and organize politically such that individuals prioritize others rather than themselves and do so without the guarantee of any personal rights. Now, when Klaus Schwab of the Globalist World Economic Forum states overtly, we must fundamentally transform how we live and organize our economies by 2030 and that, quote, you will own nothing and be happy, close quote, we should take him seriously because there is an absurd but interconnected body of thought guiding the four groups seeking to deconstruct our way of life. The move toward alternate hegemony is well underway, and the tools described in these past two podcasts demonstrate how social transformation can occur rapidly as part of a political project. All six of these tools are being employed, and we know it. Now, the antidote is the refusal to believe the lies and the falsehoods, to insist on reality, share it bravely with others so they know they are not alone, and organize politically. As Mirlu warns, quote, nearly all of the mature ideals of mankind are crimes in totalitarian, freedom and independence, compromise and ob objectivity. All of these are treasonable. In totalitarian, there is a new crime, the apostatic crime, which may be described as the obstinate refusal to admit imputed guilt. On the other hand, the hero in totalitarian is the converted sinner, the breast-beating, recanting traitor, the self-denouncing criminal, the informer, and the stool pigeon, close quote. He continues, quote, the ordinary law-abiding citizen in totalitarian, far from being a hero, is potentially guilty of hundreds of crimes. He's a criminal if he is stubborn in defense of his own view. He is a criminal if he refuses to become confused. He is a criminal if he does not loudly and vigorously participate in all official acts. Reserve, silence, and ideological withdrawal are treasonable. The only safe pass for the citizen of totalitarian lies in the complete abdication of his mental integrity. Close quote. Now, we can fight the as-if alternate hegemony and improve our country, but it will take a dedicated, integrative social movement to channel the harms that have already been introduced into our culture toward a productive end. The new suffrage movement recognizes the weaknesses of those seeking to deconstruct the U.S. constitutional system, which include free speech, free thought, free assembly, and the introduction of new and better ideas. We can and will win with the ethics of love, liberty, and light. Thank you for listening. If you like what you heard or are interested in learning more, please subscribe, comment, and share with your friends. Have a wonderful day.